Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come and overrule and overwhelm. Overrule and overwhelm these words that are spoken and these words that are heard, that they be in accordance to the word of God, for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Come and be at work in us, through us, and be glorified by us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've seen over the past few weeks, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is a very instructive passage as it reveals to us four pillars the earliest church was built upon and around. And I've made no uh, surprise or no secret about it. Uh, I believe that these are four pillars that the modern church ought to be built upon or around. And these are four points of devotion which were things that the members of the churches were diligently pursuing and practicing, and which the church as a corporate body were devoted to, that diligently pursued and practiced. Not only did their life together come under the authority of the apostles' teaching, for example, but their life as individuals came under the authority of the apostles' teaching. Very specifically, the earliest church, both as individuals and corporately together, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Now, it seems as though there's a fifth point of devotion that is shown in their actions, and that's the commitment to evangelism, to giving witness to Jesus. And so I think from this short passage, Acts 42 through 47, we can really say that there are five points of commitment the earliest church were devoted to, and these are five points of commitment which any modern church of Jesus Christ ought to be committed to. The apostles' teaching found in Scripture, the fellowship, koinonia, built upon agape or love. We'll see today the breaking of bread, and next week Father Mike will talk about the prayers. And as Acts unfolds, we see the devotion of the earliest church to evangelism. Now, as I've already said it, this morning we're going to look at the third point of devotion here. We're going to look at the breaking of bread. Now, as we talk about the breaking of bread, I think it is helpful for us to frame this conversation about the breaking of bread within a wider conversation about worship. Is that okay? Yeah. Are you all hearing me this morning? Yeah. Are we all present this morning? Yeah. Are we mostly awake? Are we on Facebook this morning? Ah, I found a tablet last week in the sanctuary. That's all I shall say. No, you can't have it. That's a good question, though. That's a very good question. Let's talk about the framework of worship. We've gathered here this morning to worship God, our creator, our sustainer, and through Jesus Christ, our redeemer. Fundamental to worship, fundamental to all of life within Jesus' kingdom is the realization that everything begins with God. Everything begins with God's initiation and God's invitation. And so worship is, in the first place, the corporate response, the gathered together response of God's people to his invitation to come together and meet with him. 
God has always been about the business of meeting with his people. Read Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. You can't get past the fact that having been created in the image of God, God invites those created beings into his presence to meet with him face to face. What happens when, when, uh, when Adam and Eve fall into sin? God goes looking for them, right? What happens when God chooses Abraham? God invites Abraham. He initiates the conversation. What happens when God redeems the people of Israel He take out of Egypt? He takes them to Mount Sinai where he meets with them. And so foundational and fundamental to the very idea of corporate worship is that we as God's people are responding to an invitation. An invitation given by the almighty creator of all that is in existence. That's a pretty phenomenal thing if you stop to think about it. We are invited to come into God's presence. We think it's a really big deal when we get invited to come into the presence of a VIP. You ever met anybody famous? Right? You start shaking when you met them, get a little nervous, right? I always have. Not that I've met anybody all that famous. But anytime I meet somebody who, you know, is, is in a position of prominence, a human in a position of prominence, I get a little nervous get a little queasy maybe even, start sweating. Why is it then that we come so nonchalantly into the presence of God? We are invited to come into his presence. And so because it's our response to God's invitation, God's initiation, worship is about God first. It's about God first and second and third. And we can say that worship is about those who worship only insofar as they are obediently responding to God's invitation to meet with him. That's what worship is. God invites and the people respond. God calls and his people gather. God speaks through his word. His people admit their sin. God announces forgiveness in Jesus. His people praise him. God offers a meal and his people come to the table. Worship is not now, nor has it ever been, the passive reception of entertainment, as if those serving as leaders of worship are actors upon the screen or stage. Worship is the active participation of all who are present, regardless of age, as they gather together as God's people, responding to God's invitation to come and meet with Him. And because it's participatory, I was almost making up words there, Claudia. That was being nice. Because it is participatory, worship is the work of the people. As worship begins with God's acts and God's actions, his initiation, his invitation, it is true that God is the audience of one. God is the one to whom we give all our praise. There's freedom here. Freedom because it's not up for the people gathered to, have, to figure out what worship looks like. There's freedom because we don't have to gin it up. We don't have to chase the goosebump. We don't have to figure it out. We just have to do that which God has called us to do, which is worship him. So not us, up to us to determine the content. That's up to God. It's up to us to respond to God in the way he has seen fit. Now, it seems from Scripture, God desires four basic things within worship. The proclamation of his word the offering of prayers and confession, the singing of praises in a variety of forms, and the celebration of the sacrament. 
Interwoven with these four bones of worship then would be the the various manifestations of the Holy Spirit all done in good order as St. Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Today we're going to look at one aspect, one of those four bones, and that's the celebration of the sacrament. Luke records in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. But what does Luke mean by using this phrase, the breaking of bread? I do believe he is referring to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, what we also sometimes call communion, what you will also sometimes hear called the Eucharist. And certainly the phrase, the breaking of bread, can refer to the sharing of a meal together. And in fact, it is used in this very passage as an expression of the fellowship and community the earliest church shared in verse 46. But because of where it's placed here in this list of chapter 2, verse 42, between what Richard Longenecker calls two religiously loaded terms, fellowship and prayers, it seems as though this means something more than the sharing of a common meal. This seems to indicate the regular observance of the Lord's Supper, as author F.F. Bruce states. And so the earliest church was devoted to the breaking of bread because it came from Jesus himself. In the 22nd chapter of his gospel, St. Luke writes, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The breaking of bread, the, the Lord's Supper, was a point of devotion for the earliest church because Jesus himself began it. Jesus himself instituted it, and it's something that he commanded his disciples to continue. You notice that Jesus says a couple of things of real importance. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this, Jesus commands, Jesus asks. Do this, breaking of bread. Do this, pouring out of wine. Be remembered, he wants to be remembered in that way. Broken bread and poured out wine. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Jesus is very clear when he says, do this in remembrance of me. But the very idea of remembrance is itself a loaded term. Sometimes when we think about remembrance, we think simply about rote memory, that we just recall the events of the past as if they have nothing to do with our present and certainly not our future. That's not the remembrance that Jesus is talking about. In the Greek, there is a very particular word for this, and it's called anamnesis. It literally means unforgetting. Jesus says, do this, break bread, pour out wine for the unforgetting of me. When we remember something, when we unforget, we do more than just think about it or recall the facts. Within this unforgetting, a past and completed action is brought into the present through an active remembering, a reliving, a re-experiencing. And we do this all the time. When I was five years old, I fell out of a cherry tree and broke my leg. It was a deep fall. It was a good two feet off the ground. It was amazing. The really great part was I broke my leg below my knee and they put me in a cast up to my knee, but then I was 
doing a, being a five-year-old, I actually rebroke my leg in the cast. <clears throat> it was amazing. They put me into a cast up to my hip from that point on. I remember, I unforget, not the first breaking, the second. I remember being at my grandparents' house as if it was this morning, sitting cross-legged, watching television, eating popcorn that my grandfather had made, my papa had made. I stood up without uncrossing my legs and the bone snapped. I remember screaming in pain and my grandfather scooping me up in his arms and putting me on the bed while he called my mom and dad. That's the unforgetting that Jesus is talking about here when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Remembering something that happened, but remembering it as if it's this morning. Bringing that past completed action into the present and having it dictate to you or communicate to you or talk to you about your present. That's what we do at the Lord's Supper. It isn't just a memorial where we remember something that happened. No, it is a memorial where we remember what happened, but in remembering, we bring it into our very life in the present. And it dictates to us. It tells us who we are. It calls us into life in Jesus. It calls us into repentance. It stirs up our faith. Unforgetting, anamnesis, remembering is so much more than just a simple past action. It is a re-experiencing of that which was done here in the present. And as we take the bread, as we drink the wine of Jesus' new covenant, what we do is re-experience the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the gospel all again. In his book, Doubting, Author Alistair McGrath shared the following story to illustrate how we can know that God loves us. He says this, An aunt of mine died some time ago, having lived to be 80 or so. She had never married. During the course of clearing out her possessions, we came across a battered old photograph of a young man. My aunt had, it turned out, fallen hopelessly in love as a young girl, but it had ended tragically. She never loved anyone else and kept a photograph of the man she had loved for the remainder of her life. Why? Partly to remind herself that she had once been loved by someone. As she had grown old, she knew that she would have difficulty believing that at one point in her life, she really had meant something to someone, that someone had once cared for her and regarded her as his everything. It could have all seemed a dream, an illusion, something she had invented in her old age to console her in her declining years, except the photograph gave the lie to that. It reminded her that it had not been invented. She really loved someone once and was loved in return. The photograph was her sole link to a world in which she had been valued. She was unforgetting every time she looked at that picture. The communion bread, the communion wine are like that photograph. They reassure us that something that seems too good to be true, something that we might even be suspected of having invented, really did happen. And in this remembering, this unforgetting, the identity of a believer in Jesus is proclaimed, renewed, restated. In the celebration of the Eucharist, we hear again the gospel of Jesus. We obey his command to do it, and we proclaim our identity in him as his people. There's a real political dimension to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because in our participation in them, in our reception of them, 
We are making a public profession that Jesus is our King, our Lord, and that we are his people. When I say political, I fear that you had images in your minds of elephants and donkeys. I don't mean anything like that. I don't mean any affiliation with anything represented by a donkey or an elephant or to any particular form of government. When I say political, I mean the sense of a fundamental position that forms and informs how a people interact with the world and others around them, how a people view the world and where a people's true allegiances and loyalties lie. And in receiving the Lord's Supper, we are declaring to God, we are declaring to one another, We are declaring to the world that we are Christians, Christ's people, and part of his kingdom, which transcends geography and ethnicity as it transcends space and time. Referred to as badges and tokens in some of our formational documents within the Anglican communion, the sacraments are like a royal uh, a Roman soldier's oath of loyalty to his unit and to his commander. When we receive the bread and the wine, we are professing loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom above all else. And baptism and the Lord's Supper then mark us out as believers in him. So we see then that the earliest church is committed to the breaking of bread because Jesus commanded it. Because it is a political statement to all that are around. And because in it, They are formed together as together they unforget who they are in Jesus. In all of this, through the sacrament, God gives us grace. Through the sacrament and the using of the bread and the wine, God gives grace to his people gathered together in worship. The breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, it's an instrument used and appointed by God as a means of his grace. Grace is given by God to those who receive the body and the blood with faith, and this grace that is given by God is given to work invisibly in us, to quicken, strengthen, and confirm our faith in him. And in this way, the sacraments are about what God has promised to do for his people. The sacraments are about what God did, God does, and God will do for those who faithfully gather as Jesus' people. The breaking of bread is a pledge. It's a promise from God. He will be faithful to do that which he promised to do in and through and by Jesus. And how do we know that he'll be faithful to that? By unforgetting, by taking the bread by sipping the wine, by receiving grace to strengthen our faith, by remembering the gospel and its ever-present reality in our lives. The sacrament testifies to us as we receive the gift of God's grace. And here's why the, the church Jesus builds is devoted to the breaking of bread. Our spirits and faith are fed by God's grace as we receive the bread and the wine. Not too long ago, I made a new friend who lives life with an insulin pump. Maybe you too know someone with such a device. I don't totally understand what happens with an insulin pump. I just know that my friend had to check his blood sugar and had things taped and stuck into him. But my understanding, while limited, I do understand this. This pump injects insulin into his body. And without insulin being injected into his body, he would die. 
He's in a constant state of need of insulin. As individual believers, we are in a constant need of God's grace. The church that Jesus builds, the church that Jesus leads, the church that Jesus sends is in a constant state of need of God's grace. And in this sense, then, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, is like the insulin pump for my friend. Grace is pumped into our veins. Grace without which we would die. Without the grace of God, we would have no chance of life, no chance of being saved, no chance of having our faith in Jesus stirred up, no chance of persevering in our faith, no chance of having our faith in Jesus strengthened, no chance of us being reminded again and again of the reality of Jesus. That's why God gives us grace so that we can be saved, so that we can have faith in Jesus stirred up, so that we can persevere in our faith, so that we can have our faith in Jesus strengthened, and that we can be reminded again and again of the reality of Jesus, having our faith in Jesus confirmed all rests solely upon the grace of God. The sacraments aren't magic. They must be celebrated and received in a worthy manner. That is, with intentional, humble, and repentant trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To those who receive with such faith or trust, God gives grace. God gives of himself through the bread and the wine. God has decided, because he's God and gets to decide these things, that he will use the bread and the wine as outward and visible signs to give inward and spiritual grace. And this grace strengthens our faith. It stirs us up. Like so many things that God expects of his people, being devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, they're good for his people. And in God's grace, he gives us these things to meet with us, to offer us life. But it doesn't end there, does it? We know that worship is a response to God's grace and that church was and is devoted to the breaking of the bread. We know that worship through the sacrament of communion is a gospel sacrament that in it God gives us grace but it doesn't end there instead what we happens in at the end of our worship service is is simply this God sends out the people with whom he has met to be his people in the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom it doesn't end when the band plays the final song, it doesn't end with the dismissal. That really is only the beginning. Having gathered into the presence of God to hear his word proclaimed, to offer our prayers and our praises, to receive the sacrament for, of grace for strength in life and faith, we are then sent out into the world as missionaries to give witness to God the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light with the express purpose of seeing others come out of darkness, come into his kingdom, respond to his invitation to come to the table. You see how it's circular in this. It really isn't all about us. It is about what God wants to do through us to claim people in this world. There is a missional end to worship. The church was and is devoted to the breaking of bread, worship through the sacrament of communion, because in it, grace is received, and grace is the fuel for life, for faith, and for mission. I said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.